Today's episode of the Dance Music Diaries features both Paul Anthony and Zach Bletz of Ghetto Blaster. Ghetto Blaster formed in 2014 and has had just a constant string of charted releases since the inception of the project. They just dropped their new album, Pineapples and Palm Trees, out right now exclusively on TrackSource, will be available in all shops on February 23rd, 2018. The album is currently the sixth most downloaded album on TrackSource, and it's featured on the Tech House, House, and Techno pages. Not to mention that three of the tracks from the album are currently sitting in the top 100 overall on TrackSource. March 8th, they'll be at the Riot Room in Kansas City. March 9th, they'll be at Billy's Lounge in Grand Rapids, Michigan. March 10th, they'll be on the Sunset Sounds Cruise in Clearwater, Florida. And they'll be announcing quite a few more tour dates in the near future. So make sure you keep an eye on their website. It's iheartghetto.com. That is I-H-E-A-R-T-G-E-T-T-O dot com. All right, thanks again to Zach and Paul for taking the time to chat with us. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. The Dance Music Diaries. Dance Music Diaries. So how did you first get involved with dance music? Well, I first got involved with dance music based on the fact that it was playing on the radio in Chicago. And I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. So basically, like, you would turn on the radio and you would hear house music after 10 o'clock. So it was kind of one of those things where when I was a child, my older sister would listen to it. I would turn the radio on and, like, at a super, super young age, I was listening to WBMX and... WGCI and B96 and all these different radio stations in Chicago that had mix shows and I, I was learning who Farley Jackmaster Funk and Bad Boy Bill and who the, all these guys were at a really young age on the radio that's kind of like how I got involved with like just liking it to begin with and typically in Chicago I feel like growing up as a kid it's not really uncommon to want turntables and become a DJ it's a little bit more common in cities like Chicago and New York and LA so yeah that's, that's typically how I got involved with it. And then obviously, you know, growing up in high school and middle school, you see the DJs at the dances in high school and they were like all cutting it up on turntables. And it was just, it was intriguing to me. So I was always a music person. So I, I definitely got, I, I was partial to house music pretty much late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. I mean, growing up in Chicago and in that era, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, one thing leads to another, you know, first it's, you know, falling in love with it. Secondly, you know, helping out, working at a record store, thirdly going to teen parties and rave parties at a young age, you know, it's like next thing you know, you're making mixtapes and you're playing huge parties for 10,000 people at it. So (laughs) (laughs) typically how it started for me for the most part by between like 95 and 96, I was already working in record shops all over Chicago. And then by 97, I was already headlining raves because my mixtapes were selling like crazy in record stores and at parties and pretty much out of my trunk. Like I would, I would actually like do bootleg mixtapes where I'd play like all the, you know, all the records I was playing at the time. And, uh, Typically, there would be there would be about ten ten to twelve DJs who had mixtapes out at stores, and I was always on the shelf. So working at the record stores, I was peddling my tapes. Yeah, sold over a hundred thousand mixtapes in the nineties. Oh wow, that's incredible! So that that got me pretty popular on the on the rave circuit for a long time. So so backing so, up from that just a bit, I mean, so, so you were you were listening to the the Chicago house tracks on the radio, fell in love with house music. Um, at what point did you decide to get a set of turntables and decide that you wanted to pursue it as a DJ rather than just as a fan of, of house music? I mean, I probably wanted turntables from the time I seen them at like six or seven years old. And by the time I was 12, I ended up getting a pair. So. Nice. Nice. So I, I started really young. So. Yeah. 12, 12 is super young. That's awesome though. And by the time I was 15, I already had a residency in a club that was doing 1,500 people every Friday night. Oh, wow. What club was that? Uh, it, was, it was actually a teenage club. It was actually in a laser tag arena on the south side of Chicago. A laser tag arena. That's awesome. Yeah, not- it would be a laser tag arena during the day, and at nighttime, it would turn into like a dance club. 
like between the ages of like 13 and 19. Oh, wow. That's incredible. I mean, it's Chicago had such a unique thing going on back then. There's probably not a lot of places in the country where that was the case, where there was, you know, a laser tag club that's playing house music in the evenings. <laughs> right, right. It's crazy how that would be because typically being from Chicago, I think that like house music was definitely like something that you would hear in every bar or every club or you know, at restaurants after a certain time, it was just so accepted by the masses in comparison to the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bet. I spent some time living in Denver and like hearing people's first house music experiences there. It was like the late nineties, early two thousands. And in Chicago, I mean, it was, it dated back further than I got into it. I mean, it started pretty much when disco died, house music became a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm, up in Seattle and just speaking from my own experience, it's like, unless you're part of the dance music community up until recently, when this whole EDM thing happened, like nobody, I mean, people just listen to hip hop or rock or whatever, but dance music was not on the radios, not part of like the public conversation up here in the Northwest. I mean, that's definitely the biggest struggle I think America has in general too, is how you educate younger kids on, you know, EDM or dance music. Like, thank God it's becoming a big thing on Spotify and Pandora and stuff like that. Because, Back then, it was cool to go to a teen club, and it was cool to do all these things. Now you don't see that as much, so it's like these kids really can't get it until they're 18 years old. They can go to a festival or something like that. I mean, that's how the younger kids get it now. And like, you know, thank God that MTV plays Skrillex and stuff like that for these kids to get their, you know, my first EDM experience. You know, yeah, it is. It is interesting too. I mean. You know what? What you guys do? If, if if you made me put a label on it, I probably wouldn't call it EDM. But I, I think it's that idea that like a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Like enough people are going to hear Skrillex for their first time, like you said, you know, on the VMAs or whatever, and then work their yeah. way towards more underground sounds from there. So I do. I agree. I think yeah. it's a really positive thing. I mean, it's a gateway. I mean, the kid—they're not just listening to Migos and you know, like Young Thug. They're they're venturing off into like Skrillex and Diplo, and then eventually, you know, Diplo plays a house track here and there. You know what I mean? Which sure. some kids are some kids are partial to, and some kids are not. So by the time they hear it, it's like, oh wow, that sounds pretty cool. The Tachami track is pretty cool, and then from there they find Nightface. From Nightface they find Dirty where they find Classic. You know what I mean? So it's like. It's like, you know, the more you listen to it, the more you research it, the more you fall in love with it kind of thing. So it's like, it's definitely a cool gateway for sure. And, and that's pretty much the only way these kids are listening to it early on is through these avenues, YouTube and, mm-hmm. and Spotify. So. Yeah, well, in a lot of ways, YouTube is like the new record store in a weird way, right? Like like when when we were growing up, you'd go to the record store and have conversation with guys and get tipped off on labels. And now the algorithms that YouTube serves up to, hey, check this out for based on what you've been listening to, kind of takes the place of the guy behind the counter at the record store. <laughs> right, totally. Um, okay, cool. So, so you said 97, you're already headlining raves, just, and you said most of that, that, uh, that local success was based on um, the, how well your mixtapes did at the stores. What kind of stuff were you playing then? Was it mostly like the Chicago Jack and House sound or...? Yeah, definitely a lot of disco house, a lot of tracky house. So, like, it was everything from, like, I mean, 97, I was already playing Daft Punk's homework album, and I think the French house movement was already kind of, like, on this big move. So, like, you had, like, Fab G and Sebastian Lager and all these different guys at the label, Royal Flush, and all these different, you know, the Cradamore, Thomas Van Galter had Roulette. Like, it was like they, they, they took Chicago House and kind of like over compressed and made it louder and cooler. And it was just fun. Like, that was a big movement for, for me to get involved in too. So, as far as that goes, I guess that's when I started like toying around with production under the name. Paul Anthony, and then like later on, developed a group with a friend called the Funk Monkeys, and I've seen you know a lot of success with those records too. Like I was doing records, I just sampled records, where I'd sample disco, and you know put it to a four four beat and filter it and do all these crazy noises. So it was pretty cool. It was fun, and it was like you know I had records on dust tracks and ammo and Eric Merlo's subliminal records. So mm-hmm. I, I put out quite quite a few records in the past before we started Got a Blaster. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that that uh, that French filtered house sound was was huge back then for sure. 
Oh yeah, for sure. It was, it was probably in my in my opinion, it was probably one of the best times for music, honestly. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's that's personally some of my favorite stuff as well. There's kind of a resurgence of it going on right now. Um, like Hatira started a new label within the last year. That's all that kind of stuff, just sample based, you know, f- French yep. filtered kind of stuff. Yeah, we actually had three releases on that label already doing. We don't we try we try not to do too much of anything, so we're not doing too much French house. But like, we definitely did a couple disco sampled records for his label and actually the ones that we had on his label all hit top 10 so it's definitely like good good selling tracks for us that's awesome yeah no it's good to be diverse but that probably that probably feels good for you like going back home in a way yeah totally totally it's like i'll always pop one in my set so like if it could be my record that'd be cooler <laughs> you know what i mean so. mm-hmm always fun to do different genres for sure yeah yeah absolutely okay cool so that was around the time that you got into production you said uh, like the late nineties, I got into production. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, it was all analog gear at the time too. I'm all software now, but definitely with a lot of analog elements, but definitely like was all hardware back then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that could be a steep learning curve, especially if you're outside the box like that. I mean, what were you using gear wise? Were you like just analog step sequencers MPC and all that? I had an MPC 2000, a virus Indigo, uh, a Mackie 1604 mixing board, rolling drum machines so it's definitely like all analog that's for sure juno 106 yeah and and so so with that setup i mean what was the learning curve like had you have you kind of been playing around the whole time or did, was there a decision that you made where it's like all right i'm gonna learn how to do this well i was kind of putting out records here and there like just as a hobby and like i never really like had it distributed or anything but with with my popularity and like the rave scene i was still able to sell a lot of records without actually distributing it all over the world so like that printed up a thousand copies of my first record i sold it in chicago in like three months like just in the stores in chicago so i never had to like try to put my records any further than that and then eventually like i i had uh gone through a couple different you know pauses of making music and i had already kind of gotten around the country and into a few other countries with just mixtapes so like i was still like already playing out a lot so i never had to put like this giant emphasis on production because it's just, I never really had time. I was like definitely playing like you know, between 80 to 120 gigs a year. So it's like kind of hard to sit still for a minute to actually learn how to do it a hundred percent. So I did a couple of collaborations, but when the rave scene kind of came to an end and there was all this time to do nothing, I was like, okay, I should probably take advantage of this before the resurgence happens and I should learn how to actually produce a hundred percent by myself. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it interesting how different that was? Like, I think of a lot of people at the time, I mean, you mentioned Bad Boy Bill working with him earlier, or like even other people in, in different genres, like DJ Irene. I mean, they've both produced a little bit, but it's yeah. just crazy to think how huge they were in the late 90s with really no hit records. You know, like they weren't known as producers when today there'd be no way you could have that level of fame and notoriety in the dance music scene without a hit record. Well, Irene didn't really have a hit record. She did it with uh, mixtapes. Bill definitely had a couple hit records. He had a couple huge, huge crossover records that were like in in different aliases. So I don't think people necessarily know about them. So if you were like to read his biography, you would actually know that he was reality with a song called Yolanda. Yeah, he did a song called Yolanda with Cool Rock Study that was like Billboard Top 20. And like he played all over the world touring with that group performing it. So... Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, I, did, I didn't realize that was the connection there. Yeah, just like Eric Merlo, like, he had a hit record called Jazz It Up, and it was, like, a different name. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, like, a total different name. Nobody even knew it was him. Some of these guys that you would think didn't have hit records had hit records early on in their careers under different names, and it actually made it to where they could fund their, their full-on career by themselves. So, hmm. very interesting. Yeah, that is that is interesting stuff, for sure. Um. Okay, cool. So, so definitely the mix CDs, the when the mix CDs like revolutionized when they went from like bootleg tapes, like how I was doing. Like Bill had a huge success run with that as well, but then he was like one of the first to actually do a legal mixtape too, where he licensed all the music. He yeah, was on with the, the, the what was that? Banging in the box was the first ones, right? And then House Connection after yeah, that. Yeah, banging or? in the box, yeah. and then behind the decks, it was like those things that were on like, like the end caps at Best Buy. And, Totally. At the time, Virgin Records and all those different places, which I had a couple of those too later on in my career, like by 2004 or five, I was already getting mixed CDs on shelves too. But he was one of the first to do it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, that's yeah. It's just it's just interesting to look back and, and see how things have evolved. You know. Yeah, for sure, hundred percent. Yep. So, um, okay, cool. So, so the rave scene was kind of dying down. You decided it was time to hunker down and learn production. So, I mean, what was that, what was that process like for you? Did you have, um, you know, mentors to kind of help point you in the right direction? Was it a little bit of trial and error? I mean, I had a couple of friends that I made music with and pretty much like we just all sat in the studio for hours and just figured it out together. It was definitely like one of these things where it wasn't an overnight process and, you might as well throw away the instruction manual on how to load up a disc on an MPC 2000. You just got to learn hands-on from someone who knows how to do it. It's the easiest way to learn it. So I had, yeah. at the time, I had already made friends with some of the engineers in the business. So like by this by this time, I already had these tapes like Paul Johnson and other people where we were like playing parties every weekend together. Me, DJ Funk, Paul Johnson, Derek Carter. We were playing all these different parties together. So like... Any questions I had, it wasn't too hard just to get on the phone and be like, hey, how do you do this? You know, so totally. it's kind of one of those things where my, my homies were like, we all came up at the same time. You know, those guys were producing before me. That's why they got tremendously bigger, faster than me because they had records on. I didn't realize at one point, I was like, wow, these guys get out of the country by making records. It was crazy to me. That concept was like, okay, so if I make a record, it gets distributed to London or Bulgaria or Germany, and I could eventually play it there. Like, that concept was crazy to me. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So once, so once I figured that out, I ended up doing a record with a friend of mine where I did the vocals on it and ended up getting pretty big on BBC Radio 1. And all of a sudden, I got a couple offers from Greece and Bulgaria and Romania. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. I'm getting offers out of the country now. <laughs> this is really crazy. That's awesome. When was the first time that you played abroad? Uh, 2002. My first gig was in Milan, Italy. And my second one was in Sofia, Bulgaria. Milan is not a bad spot for your first international gig, man. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, was definite, it was definitely one of those things where it was a little shocking. You know, the first time you're off a plane and you're looking around, like it's like, holy shit, I can't read anything. <laughs> this is all in a different language. And my music that I make in my basement, in my boxing shorts, got me here. This is crazy. <laughs> Just that concept, you know, like I'm a, I'm a bedroom producer who's playing in a different country. And I guess the part that is shocking is like when you leave, everyone that was in that club until the next Chicago guy comes there, that's what they think of Chicago house until the next guy comes. Mm, that's an interesting thought. So, yeah. It's just like when you, when you conceptualize that in your head, you're like, wow, that's it. Like I have to represent my city. So you can't be an idiot. You got to stay on point. You're like representing an entire city and country. Like, yeah, definitely, definitely a patriotic feeling. I know it's really weird to say that because I'm not like captain patriotic, but it's definitely like, wow. You know? And then, so at that time you were playing, was it Paul Anthony that you were playing under? Yes. hundred okay. percent. I was, I played, I, even though I had different group names, I never played under a different group name. I always played under Paul Anthony. Gotcha. So the quote unquote groups that you were in were, were production based. And then when you toured, it was always Paul Anthony back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Anthony of this group or that group. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so, sense. That, that makes sense. Definitely, definitely did that. And like, it wasn't until this group that I decided that like, it'd be cool to like, not only make music together, but like actually tour and play together too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Cool. Um, yeah, so, so Zach, if you're still with us there, let's let's flip over to to kind of how you got into dance music. I mean, how did you first get involved with dance music? Um, actually, as a as a teen, going to like uh, clubs, like teen clubs, listening to uh, dance music in Detroit. Like I at that time, I didn't really realize that like I was gravitating more towards like the electronic music rather than like the poppy stuff that they were playing. So, like, I didn't, like I said, I didn't really realize it then. And then, um, once I got, like, into college, uh, I started to go to, like, more of the warehouses in Detroit and then to, like, Motor. Um, and, like, one of the things about, like, my first warehouse experience was, I mean, for me, just being a kid, just out of high school, I mean, it was it was amazing that everybody like came to like this really like run down building, and you had to like walk around the back, and it was literally like this old school warehouse where like there was sweat on the walls, 
dripping. I mean, there's like a little film on the floor. It wasn't like the nicest place, but to see everybody that like came there, like that didn't even care about that. They were just there for the music, you know, and the vibe. I mean, that like that experience like touched my soul. Uh, and like from that point on, that was like, man, this is like something I want to be involved with, and I want, I'd love to do. So then I, when I was in college, like pretty much right after that, like I ended up buying turntables and a mixer, and started started playing like just for friends and everything, and then you know house parties and moved on from there. Yeah, what what year was that first warehouse party you went to? Ninety-seven. Ninety-seven. So, so, so we, so late nineties, and you said that was in Detroit. Yep. Yep. Nice. That's awesome. I mean, that makes perfect sense too. Just listening to your guys' catalog, that you'd have, you know, nineties Chicago and nineties Detroit in your guys' background. <laughs> you can kind of hear it. You can kind of hear it in our music. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it makes perfect sense after you know being familiar with you guys' tracks. You know, there's definitely Detroit and Chicago influences that kind of run throughout. So that definitely makes sense. So, so how long were you how long were you DJing around Detroit before you made the move to Chicago? Um, for a few few years, actually, like once um, maybe about three years, and but during that time, I went to Chicago to several parties. And just like, uh, I kind of was drawn towards the sound because like predominantly in Detroit was like a lot of techno, you know, um, but I didn't, I got like house because people like the techno guys would mix it in, you know, with, with the techno, but never really full on like house, you know, and it's just funny how it ended up as, uh, a mix that I listened to that a girl that I know um, new bad boy Bill and she just popped it in on uh, spring break and she's like oh this is a guy I know and you know here's his mix or whatever and I just remember listening to that because like I never really heard anybody like scratch or like do tricks or anything like that that much like in Detroit I didn't really see it and so like that just like uh, that was amazing to me you know do you remember which mixtape really, it was uh, I think it was him and uh, Richard House Connection One. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, it was either one or two, but yeah, it was. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah, those are those are classics for sure. And the only reason why that I ask is I was hoping you would say the House Connection stuff because that was that was huge for me. I mean, for me personally, in my journey with house music is. You know, I started going to parties, uh, you know, the, the very end of the 90s. And then I think in the year 2000, I finally got my hands on on the House Connection stuff. And that was like definitively when I went from, you know, just being a kid that went to parties to socialize and, and do what people do at parties to really giving a shit about the music. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, oh, my God, what is yeah. this? Like, I get it now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was a big fan of, like, uh, hip hop, like you know, back then or whatever. So to hear those the scratches and like the samples and stuff, I, I became a fan right out the gate, you know, mm-hmm. and the energy. I mean, the energy is just was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is, that is interesting too. Cause like you said, after DJing in Detroit for so long where, you know, it's a lot of blend mixing, longer mixes, seven minute tracks, you know, with, you know, the darker techno yep. stuff. And then to go for, to hear, you know, Bad Boy Bill mash through like 55 tracks in an hour or whatever they were doing back then. You know, it's such a different way of going about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it was crazy. Like I said, like just hearing it, I'd never really heard anything like that before. So yeah, to me, that yeah, <laughs> that was pretty amazing. Yeah. So when you were so were you in Detroit, so so you you had that friend that showed you that Bad Boy Bill mix. You you know you started thinking more along lines of house music. Did you start playing house out in Detroit, or I mean, did that happen more when you moved to Chicago? No, actually in Detroit, like I would uh, mix it in with techno. I mean, house is becoming more accepted. There are a lot of um, artists that ended up coming through Detroit from Chicago. You know. I think just because it's not too far away from each other, you know, so it, it was like a natural progression almost. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I still, yes, be predominantly techno, but I would definitely mix in, like, a lot more house. Or if I played, like, you know, more towards uh, the beginning of the night, couldn't really go hard. I'd have to play, like, house, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, sure. So what prompted the move to Chicago? Um, change of scenery. And one of the girls that I was dating, we both just decided to move. So it was just kind of like, get out and experience something new, you know? Yeah. So then when you landed in Chicago, um, did, I mean, were you already playing out, uh, DJing? I mean, or, or were you, were you producing? What was, what was your music situation like when you made that move? I was DJing. I was DJing, not producing. I didn't start producing until uh, 2013, roughly. Oh, okay. So you were at it for a while before you made the move. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I pretty much just DJed. Like, I took a lot of time, like, uh, learning the ins and outs of uh, the software Ableton. Mm -hmm. Like, and didn't really, it took me a while to kind of, like, just get the knack of everything. Uh, And, like, 2011, I went to uh, Berkeley College of Music for a couple of years and uh, got uh, production with uh, Ableton, electronic music production with Ableton. So that was when I started taking it seriously. Yeah. Not production anyway. And what, and what year did you move to Chicago? Chicago, I think it was 2005. Okay. Okay, so there's quite a quite a gap in between there. So what? Uh, um, so that whole time you were just DJing. What kind of spots were you playing out at? Um, I played at Motor several times in Detroit. I was at Vegas Wild Warehouse parties. Um, didn't really play Chicago much, just like mostly Detroit and Michigan area. Gotcha. So you, so you travel back for gigs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense if that's where you grew up, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, there wasn't really any production behind it at that time. So, that was definitely one of the things that I learned that you needed to do in order to get out to larger larger areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's kind of what Paul was just saying, right? I mean, if you want to blow up outside of your hometown, that's kind of the way you have to do it. Yeah, sir. So, so what point do your guys' paths cross? Yeah, we crossed, uh, I want to say we crossed in the late 90s, 2000s, because Zach had gotten involved in throwing parties with a couple other promoters in the Kalamazoo area. And uh, Kalamazoo, well, I, I think Detroit, too. You were throwing parties at Detroit. Yeah, Detroit and, yeah, and Rapids, yeah. So we like kind of like... I guess you could say being like a Chicago guy, like uh, there was demand for me in other cities around me, especially because my mixtapes definitely circulated as far as, as far as California actually. But randomly, like they started booking me for parties and that's how I met Zach. But I mean, by the third time he booked me, we became friends and we've been friends ever since. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, that was the nice thing about Paul. It was always, as long as you could get a crowd in front of him, just let him do his thing, honestly. I was like, <laughs> it's real. Like, as long as you could get him a crowd, uh, he'd tear this off. That's awesome. So, so Paul, you were going to Detroit to play for Zach. He was throwing parties out there. Yeah, I had been playing Detroit a little bit before that for other promoters, but he was one of the people who put in an offer. One of, one of his partners put in an offer for me. It's actually kind of a funny story. <laughs> the, the, the guy who booked me, it was funny. He came to a Chicago party. It was like Thomas Ben Galter from Daft Punk, Bad Boy Bill, myself, Sebastian Leger, Paul Johnson, and somebody else. Huge party. Oh, my God. Probably, yeah, probably 8,000 people at the party. I, I, DJ Funk was there. Hold on, there was one more. Boo Williams was there. And then, yeah, it was, it was a crazy Chicago lineup. It was just like, it was at the Dalton Expo Center. That's insane. And so... 
and some six foot five dude with a pacifier in his mouth sweating his ass off walks up and says, Bro, I fucking love you, man. Like, seriously, you're like one of my favorite DJs. Can't believe I'm like running into you at a party. Like, I want to book you for a show. I'm like, right, right, right. And I gave it to my business card. He hit me up and I totally blew off the booking because I was like, dude, this kid's like a total raver. These pills with a pacifier. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to play for this fucking dude. And then I seen the party he threw, and I was like, holy shit, it was like Bad Boy Bill, Richard Vision, yeah. uh, Digital Underground, uh, who else is on that bill? There's Funkmaster Flex. Funkmaster yeah. Flex. I'm like, oh holy god. shit, this raver kid. Oh, dude, this crazy fucking party. Oh my god, I should have done it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's when I learned not to turn on losers from his partner anymore, and then eventually they booked me, and I met Zach. <laughs> Yeah. That's, That's hilarious. That so, so you turned the first one down, and it was just a monster party, and you and you said never again. <laughs> oh, yeah, like a monster party with like ten thousand people at it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was funny, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, so the the six foot five guy with a pacifier in his mouth. That was to to be clear. That was Zach's partner, not Zach. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely that part. I'm sure that <laughs> went around with a pacifier, but <laughs> he eventually he eventually replaced it with his thumb, and we're good. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, my, oh my gosh, that's too funny. Well, so okay, so you guys have been homies for a long time, then. So I mean, when did you start actually working working together outside of like the promoter role? Uh, well, probably, I mean, we were friends. I mean, I would stick around for a day or two, you know, or come in a day early when I was playing for him. So we just kind of became, actually, it's another funny story. <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to say, you can get into this one. Hey, this is pretty long. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> so, so his partner, the guy who was like, totally like, on, on my dick pretty much, was like, yo, man. I fucking love you. If you ain't got no bookings this weekend, you got to come to Grand Rapids, bro. I got you. Like, we're doing a party. I'll throw you a thousand bucks. Like, come through, man. I'm like, last minute, you'll throw me a thousand. All right, cool. Shit, I'm on my way. Yeah, so like, let, let me tell my side of that story. So, oh, no, so before that, before you tell that, that's right. He, he tells me, he's okay. like, there's going to be a barbecue. We're going to chill. We're going to throw, I have this big party going on. Like, just come through my crib, dude. Like, come early. All right. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm on my way. You sent me a thousand bucks. I was out the door. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so it's fun. So, so go ahead, you're sad story, bro. <laughs> oh yeah, so my father tells me he's like, "Yo, man, like, shit, Tony Anthony's coming up here to hang out or whatever. Like, gotta get to my house. Gotta get to my house. Like, you know, he's just coming. I'm like, what? What, what are you talking about, man? He's like, I don't know, man. He's coming up just to hang out. Like, come on, hang out with us. Like, all right, all right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so I'm, I'm gonna take the story back over. I get to this dude's house, yep. and I'm like. <laughs> Is there a barbecue, bro? Like, what's going on? He was like, oh, you really wanted a barbecue, man? So he called up his boy, like, yo, man, got Paul Anthony in my crib. Can you bring over a grill? Like, you didn't even have a grill. <laughs> so as the grill's on its way there, he sent his girl to go get food. And then, like, so we're eating, whatever. And I, that's when I met Zach. We got a little high. We were, like, playing uh, John Madden on Nintendo yeah. or something or PlayStation. And exactly, yeah. totally into football, and I'm totally not into football. And like, really good at video games. I'm just fucking beating his ass all over the fucking he game. Doesn't like, even know how to play. He's running plays. I'm just throwing like sixty yard ground berries. And he was getting just so pissy too. The controller got mad. And finally, it's like ten o'clock. What did you do? I'm like, bro, you paid me like a thousand bucks to come play a party. Is, is there a party going on? Or are we just playing fucking John Madden football? And he was like. Oh, you actually want to play? Hold on a second. He gets on the phone. He's like, yo, man, you guys got party going on tonight? He's like, yeah. He's like, all right, cool. I got Paul Anthony, man. Sponsored by me, man. Just like, you guys could have him tell your other headliner they're not going to play. Paul Anthony's going to play. I bumped another headliner just to throw me on. <laughs> That's hilarious. So hold so, on. And this is, that was the night that me and Zach probably got really tight. <laughs> so yeah. we like, so yeah, hold we on. Ba- back up. I'm confused. So, so why did he pay you $1,000? Just to kick it under the under the guise of like a private party barbecue. Yeah, and there was no party. There was no barbecue. There was no anything. There was just three dudes at a house playing fucking John Madden football. I walk in. I'm like, this is really weird. Yeah, right. Oh man, that's hilarious. 
<laughs> so, so I gravitated towards being friends with Zach because he was the most most normal person in the room. So we became friends. Yeah, that's <laughs> right? that's too funny. Um, okay, cool. And what year was that? I have no idea. Two thousand two, maybe early two thousand somewhere. Before that, well, I before that, well, I had yeah, met you before that, but that was that that was the time that that happened, like two thousand one or two, maybe somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. It was a long time, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, if you guys known each other for that long, and then you know Zach went to school, you'd already been producing records and you know playing internationally. What prompt? What prompted getting together and, and forming Ghetto Blaster? What's the story behind the the origin there? The initial story that I could think of at the time, I was doing a lot of EDM stuff. So was Zach. I was. Yeah. I was on tour with Cryo Man, the the giant robots that tour with like Steve Aoki and David Guetta. Oh wow! And I was ghostwriting their music, which I don't even care if that comes out in an interview because those guys are total assholes. But so I was ghostwriting Cryo Man's music, and I was like his tour DJ on and off, and it just really started getting crazy for me as far as like how they treated people like that side of the business of like when you start getting into the ghostwriting and like people start treating you like an employee and talking shit to you and it was just like i had a lot of crazy shit going on in my life at the time at the time i had a girlfriend i was with for five years that i moved to denver for and she i i was on tour i had come home to check on her we had been broken up but like she was like going through some shit i found her dead on heroin and like oh my god paul yeah, it was it was a crazy experience, and that stunned me. I was like, "Oh shit, I need to take a break from everything right now and just like kind of like get my head together what I'm doing." And I started realizing I didn't like EDM music anymore, even though I was. I mean, I had 150 top 100s with 10 number ones on Beatport. I just wasn't like what I was feeling. I came from Chicago. I was doing Chicago house and started doing electro and like. I felt like I was just like doing it because I was good at it, not because I liked it. So like, it took like this crazy experience in my life to like stop everything. Yeah. So yeah. then my enough money to like to like take a long break. So I took a long break, and Zach's like, "Hey, you want to go to Miami this year?" I was like, "Fuck yes, I want to go to the beach. <laughs> I totally <laughs> want to go to Miami." So we went to WMC and. I don't know. I got booked for a party at 11, 11, uh, rooftop strip club after hours that happens across from skins. And it was a porn and chicken party where they're all playing dubstep. And like, I don't know, me and Zach were like, Hey, I'm going to shake up the room. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to play dubstep. I'm going to play house music. I'm going to fuck all these people up. <laughs> and he was like, are you serious? I'm like, dead serious. <laughs> so I, yeah. I dropped some house yeah, I know. I see Bad Boy Bill on my dance floor. I see Paul Oakenfold on the dance floor. I see Donald Glad. I'm like, oh, shit. People are vibing on house music where the dubstep. All right, cool. I, I, and the promoter is like, dude, like, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. <laughs> I crashed the dubstep party with house music. <laughs> That's so awesome. We looked at each other, and I was like, what do you think we should do? He's like, I don't go to a couple more parties. We went to Sneaks Party. We went to Green Velvet's party. We went to Jimmy Edgar's party. And next thing you know, we're like, we should like totally start a group and just go back to what we fucking love. And that's kind of like how Ghetto Blaster started for the most part. Yeah. 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 And so, so that was um, WMC 2013? That was 14. 2014. 14, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so the idea behind it was kind of just getting back to your guys' roots then, huh? Totally. Yeah. Like, I know for me, at least, I was like, man, you know, like when I first started producing, it was the tail end of the disco house scene. So I was doing like disco house and stuff. It was like, by the time I got decent at it enough to want to release a track, it was already starting to wind down. Yeah. And like, it was like disco house guys went two ways. Like the felt like the, the terrace era of like the space invader and Olaf Bazowski and all these people, Congo squad, like you can go down the list, there's a ton of them. So, but you come to this point and there was like a Y in the road. It's like you go left or you go right. It's like electro or deep house. Yeah. 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 I went, I went electro because I was still playing massive parties and the main room was electro. So. Mm-hmm. And and I had a really good run with it, like between releasing on Ultra or a laid back weeks mix mash label. Like I got some like 
Tiesto, Fatboy Slim, David Guetta, Afrojack, like all these dudes are playing my tracks. Like if you go to 100,001 tracklistings.com, like you actually be shocked by how many of these dudes who make $100,000 an hour are playing my records. And it just got to the point where it's just like, I kept doing it. It's just like, it was just too much because it started turning more into like just like progressive, trancey stuff that I was totally not into. Like, yeah. I was in the Chicago hard house and disco. So when it started getting to these epic builds, I was like, this is ethically horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I could make it, but I was like, I don't love this. This is not who I am. Yeah. So yeah. I just kind of, I kind of just took, I, I had to take a break at that point. Yeah. That's why I started getting into ghost producing. I produced trap music. I did a remix for dead mouse that ended up hitting number one on Beatport. It took Skrillex's new song out of the top 100 and, I ended up staying at the number one position for eight weeks, and I stayed in the top 100 on Beatport for 370 days. Yeah. Like, yeah, doing that's, trap music. That's so crazy. Like, but that just shows you like the versatility on production. Like when I hear something, I can do it, but it's not necessarily that I love it. So it's like I need to stick with the things that are from my heart. It seems to like motivate me to want to make tracks. That's why you know when we're working on music, that's why Ghetto Blaster is already where we're on our third or fourth 20 track album. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple things there, you know, like, like you said, I mean, if you're talented enough in the studio and you have the aptitude, right. And then the skill sets and the resources that you need to be able to pull it off. And then if you have your finger on the pulse of a scene, whether you like it or not, it follows that you'll be able to produce like a, it's like some, some tracks that are, that are going to chart. But, but I mean, I think what you're saying is important that at that point, it's just a fucking job. You know, like if you don't love well, it, it, and your it heart's job, not in that's it. the thing nowadays, nowadays, I feel like when we're DJing, 80% of our set is our music now. That, that was not like yeah. that. I actually rarely played my records back then. So that's, yeah. that's kind of like, that was the double edged sword. It's like, cool, I can make this music that, that the mainstream likes, but I don't like it. So I'd get booked for shows and I could scratch and do tricks to keep them entertained, but they wanted to hear like this big room stuff that I just was not into doing really. So. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and that's kind of, the, I don't, I don't know if you can hear this in our music or not too, but that's also why I kind of like give some of our chunky things, big buildups too. Cause I'm like, you know what? Like house music belongs in the main room over this other stuff. Yeah. So why don't I, why don't I take the elements of what a big room is and put it into like yeah. a deeper track? Mm-hmm. No, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, you know, a lot of your, a lot of your stuff that's, Kind of how I'd describe it. I mean, if someone asked me to describe the Ghetto Blaster project, I would say, like, you know, it's it's traditional Chicago Jack and House, a lot of it, um, house and tech house, but with a lot of elements from, like, what people are now calling, like, Future House, or I guess people are calling it Deep House, but it's kind of not. I don't know how to explain it. Um, but kind of that futuristic element, right? Like, like what's current in house music for the younger kids, like really fused with like the Chicago house that we grew up with, you know, is, is, is what I get from it. Yeah. And if you really listen to our music too, you'll also notice that you hear a lot of 808s and 909s, which you hear in trap music right now. Totally. And like, I'll side chain it to a kick drum because the point is like, the fact is we're not going to stop kids from listening to Migos and all these different things. So it's like, this is all 808 driven music. So it's like, that's when, when we work with Kid Enigma or MC Flipside, like it's really cool because like they bring the rap element to our 808 house sound. So it's going to cross between like what hip hop kids like and what house music kids like. And that's when we're playing parties. You see the gangster out of the walk up and go, man, I fucking hate house music. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, there's definitely that hip hop element. You know, I think that the the nearest comparison that's also hot right now would be like like Dirty Bird's got a lot of that going on as well, right? And I don't think it's a coincidence that both Ghetto Blaster and a lot of the Dirty Bird stuff are, are hot right now. I mean it's it's that fusion that like a foot in both camps, you know. Right, right. We get a lot of support from the guys that are on Dirty Bird too, all the different artists that are on the label. We get a lot we actually played the Dirty Bird camp out unofficially. <laughs> we weren't supposed to. Yeah. We, uh, we went with our boy DJ Dion. We went to the West Coast one and, uh, it was awesome because Jay Flip had missed her shuttle from the hotel to the campgrounds and she was like 40 minutes late. Dion was like, yo man, I don't want to play anymore. You want to play? I was like, dude, you're on the main stage in front of 12,000 people. Do I want to play? Yes. I have to have my thumb drive. I have my We're good. Yeah. <laughs> I plugged in. And- yeah, the the, less, you know. the lesson there for any up and coming DJs is always have your thumb drive in your pocket. 
and be, and be ready to crush. You know what I mean? That, that was yep. the cool thing. I got I got a chance to play for 40 minutes, and I played nothing but unreleased Ghetto Blaster tracks. Next thing I know, my homie Don Ramini's right behind me. He's like, I didn't know you guys had, like, turntable skills like that. I didn't know you were so technical. I, was like, I heard you're coming to Europe in a couple weeks. He's like, you want to play my party in Paris? So just from playing that 40 minutes, we ended up getting a gig in Paris out of it. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so Zach, so so Zach, what was the motivation for you with the Ghetto Blaster project? I mean, why did it make sense for you? Like Paul just told his story about his journey with EDM and wanting to get back to his roots. Why did it make sense for you? because uh, for me, it was going back to to my roots. So what I loved because it kind of got to be like Paul was saying, it was more of like just a process, a job of doing doing EDM, the hard harder stuff or whatever. And, like, the love, I just didn't really love it that much anymore. I was almost, like, just going through the motions. And then, like, like you said, we went to WMC and just kind of, like, taking in just a totally different vibe. Like, the different end of the spectrum was like, man, this is, like, this is what where I fell in love with this music, you know? Like, this is, like, what got me into it. Yeah. And that's what turned me on the most, too, because it was like, man, like, if we can reach kids like how we were reached when we were younger with this music and kind of like progress them and like teach them the music you know rather than just this young stuff that's going on like that really kind of like turned me on doing like just being able to go back to what we love doing and being able to like reach the younger audience without crossing over to that other side you know yeah. Yeah, no, that that definitely makes sense. There's almost like an educational element to what you're saying, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just cuz like I feel that you know, you've got always out of 100 kids, 10 might research the music and find techno or find house or whatever. Like if we can just reach those kids, you know, and then have them reach out to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah uh, one thing I want to add to the production thing too, it's like funny to me cuz like when I first fell in love with the idea of wanting to make music. I wasn't capable of making what I wanted to make, but then when I was finally capable of making anything, I was on some other shit. (laughs) I was like, and that was the realization. I'm like, man, we should really get back down to like original Chicago tracks. Like I think about like, for me, when I think about like Daft Punk, okay, these guys Hands down, like, I don't care what anyone says. Everyone could think they're the biggest thing in the whole fucking world. These guys changed dance music three times. Three times? And no, I agree completely. And I think when the Homework album came out, that was a big, like, yo, fucking Chicago did it first. We admire 90% of the people that inspired us and that we admire are from Chicago. And the other 10% are from other places. And we're going to do a song called Teachers and we're going to give them a shout out in the song. I don't know if you remember that song or not. But oh, like, for sure. That was, that was the best move. I've actually thought about that a lot over the years. That like without that song on that album, I feel like they may, they may have gotten shit for like ripping off the Chicago sound. But with that song, all of, a sudden, all of a sudden it changes it from a ripoff to an homage, you know? Totally, yeah. and that's where you were inspired, and they did it a little differently, but yet gave it their own flavor. I thought it was cool, and what was cool about that song was 90% of those people on that list are my homies. Like, hands down, my homies. I'll sure. do anything for half of those people on the list. And, and if you go through that list, like, it's funny because, like, one of our early goals were we should work yeah. with everyone on that list. We literally should work with everyone on the list because, A, they're our friends, but, D, like, they inspired yeah. the biggest dance music group in the history of dance music, really. I mean, Daft Punk yeah. is like, I'm not saying that they're God's gift to everything because like I listen to their tracks. Yeah, I can make their tracks, but they came up with it first. They innovated. They they pushed the envelope. Anyone can mimic somebody, but they came up with it. You know, the concept, the idea. I, I believe that everyone went back to house music because time to get lucky. Like, I think that song, Get Lucky, was the one that kind of made me go, damn, I forgot about funky music. This is really fucking funky. Yeah. Yeah. I hate, trust me, being a Chicago guy, there's part of me that's like, fuck, I gotta give props to a French dude. But it's like, you know, it's like, they did, they took the torch that we handed to them and they went through the finish line with it, man. And like, to me, when I hear that, like, 
listening to all our music, if you go through our catalog, I mean, we work with Robert Armani, we work with ESP Baby McBride, we've remixed Paul Johnson, we've worked yeah. with, who else do we work with? DJ Dion, we worked with, we're working with Funk right now. But you go down the list of all these people on this thing, and like, we're working with a lot of these people, and that's like kind of like the idea is to work with people that I should have been working with to begin with. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, like, literally, Dean told me today, he's like, man, he's like, I remember when I met you, motherfucker. I was like, who the fuck is this kid playing parties all the time with no records out? That's what he said to me. <laughs> he's like, then I was like, fuck, man, I got a fucking tour with you, bro. Like, quote, quote, unquote, DJ Fuck. <laughs> so, with that being said, to pay homage to the homie that, like, inspired me, you know what I mean? And it's like, I played all their tracks, and I was, at the time, I wasn't capable of making it, but now that I was, like, I've furthered my production to the point where I feel like I'm confident that I can make something in every genre, because I definitely have top 10 in every genre on Beatport. Mm-hmm. So I was like, now, now that I comfortably can do that, now I need to go back to what it is that got me to want to make music and do that because I've never done that. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think this is the safe lane for me. I think this is where I need to be. You know, I, I laid back Luke interviewed me on episode 13 of his vlog. He's like, this is my buddy from Chicago. And he talks about how we brought it back to the roots and off camera. He was telling me, he's like, man, I really think it's cool that you went back to your Chicago roots, man. He goes, that's really cool. He's like, you're going to have a career probably to the day you die because you did that. Yeah. Cause you're not going to be, you're not going to just be a fad. You're going to be one of the legends. He's like, I'm honored to know you. And that's cool. You know what I mean? Like, cause I'm honored to know him. I mean, he's one of the most humble, you know, top 20 DJs in the world. Yeah. So, like, yeah. No, getting, definitely. Getting, getting advice from him is like, getting advice from someone who has made it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had a remix from him. Way back when, too, on the first one. Oh yeah, he did a remix. He did a remix for us on my first label, Dirty Fabric. When I was doing yeah. a group called the Funk Monkeys, our first vinyl release of the Funk Monkeys had a had a laid back loop remix. Yeah, and, and it was Disco House, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His remix was Disco House or the original track. No, laid back. We our, our track was Disco House, but laid back loop did a Disco House remix of one of our one of my first Funk Monkeys tracks. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'm popping the collar right now. I got laid back. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. So how long after you guys' trip to WMCC, you went to WMC and you thought like, fuck, we need to get back to our roots here. Did you just hit the studio immediately and start banging out tracks together? I mean, did it it take a little while for that to heat up? What was the progression like? We both got on an airplane, came back to Denver and went to a dispensary and bought an ounce of weed and got really high and just... It was funny, Zach was just looking at me like, you ready? I'm like, yeah. And we ordered pizza. <laughs> and they're like, you ready? I'm like, yeah. And it was winding down to the end of this trip. It was like the last thing. He's like, bro, are we ever going to fucking make a track, bro? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And literally, we made out three tracks that day. And one of the tracks is that back at Asheville. DJ yeah. Dion that's gotten played by like Kia, got played by Miss Kitten and Seth Troxler, got played by a bunch of people. And it was cool because like, that was like the first Ghetto Blaster track. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. Well, a whole EP, the Ghetto tracks, that was literally yeah. written then at night. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we wrote that whole EP that night. And it was just hilarious. I think we even ran out of weed at that point. <laughs> like, you were like, are we ever going to make a track? Yeah, we should. <laughs> I'm one of those people, too. I don't like to do anything until I feel like it's the time. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a real big, I'm real big on the gut feeling. Like, I feel like certain records, like like I did. We did a record with our friend Missy, and we did that in like September, and we just released it last month. It hit top ten on Track Source, but it was like it just wasn't the right time to put it out. You know what I mean? Like mm. I feel like if you have to go with when you when you're watching the market, you're knowing you, you see when there's a good time to put something out, or like when your music starts shaping towards the sound. It's like okay, like. I may have made this track four months ago, but it was four months ahead of its time. Right now is the time to drop it. Yeah, Yeah, that's interesting. But I mean, the only way you can do that is if you have the output that leads to that kind of back catalog in the can ready to go, you know? I mean, right now we were, when we got to Europe, 
But when we got the event for ADE, we ended up getting really inspired there, and we had studio sessions lined up in London for two weeks afterwards. So it, we uh, we rented a studio, actually played Deep Studios in London. Uh, yeah, basically we were uh, we were there for like fifteen or fifteen days, and that's when we were like. We were, we were working with someone, engineering with somebody, and then we were like, you know what, we should start our album since we have this, like, half, well, actually, it's more than half. It's like a million-dollar studio, probably, with all yeah. this, like, access to, like, move Voyagers and all these crazy synthesizers. We're oh, like, we God. should take advantage of being able to use this vintage equipment, and we should put the old-school ones with, like, the wood panels and shit. It was awesome. We should totally, like, work on our album. And from that point till probably last week, we finished 35 tracks for our album since mid-October. And that's for yeah. for the new album? Yeah, the new yeah. album, Pineapples and Palm Trees, that comes, comes out, I believe, I want to say 27, 20, the 29th of January. Okay, so January yep. 29th, and it's called Pineapples and Palm Trees? Yes. So when I think of London, I don't think of pineapples and palm trees. So where where does that? No, uh, but when I close my eyes and think about where I want to be, it's definitely pineapples and palm trees all day. Son. All right, fair enough. <laughs> and just for just for uh, food for thought, just so you know, I don't know if you research things, but apparently pineapples make your cum taste better. So I was like, yes, pineapples. I'm all about it. I've I've heard that before for sure. Um, I, I haven't done research so, though, per your suggestion. I haven't done the research of actually tasting it, <laughs> but by popular demand, pineapples are in demand. So we were like pineapples for sure, and I want to be by palm trees all the time. Yeah, that's hilarious. So, so um, and then our, on our new album, we have featured. I'm going to do a little advertisement for our new album. We have DJ Funk on our album. We have Missy on our album. We have Dion, DJ Milton, John Kennedy. We have MC Flipside, Robert Armani. We have Chippy, um, which is the original song, Time to Jack. We redid that with him. We have Ron Carroll, Ford Foster, uh, Frankie Kathleen's and my boys from Leeds. We have Steve Silk Hurley, who did uh, the original Jack Your Body song, DJ Skip, um, Alex Peace, Bad Boy Bill, Hatteras, Rolling Clark, Romero, Bernabella, um, Fuzzy Cufflinks, a.k.a. Bear Who. We have Melly Fresh. We have Just Alexander. And that's it for our album. So we have a 22-track album. The rest are all original. So that's a, that's a serious lineup. I mean, if you go look at the people you've collaborated with on your last, like with everyone you just named, plus everyone on your last couple albums, you guys are going to run out of people to work with pretty soon. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have Ken Enigma on this one, too. KE, I forgot about that. We just finished that, like, literally before you called. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and then you just had a, you just had a single with Colette recently. Yep, totally. Yeah. Um, we yeah. have a bunch of singles coming out, too, actually. We just did another one with Hatteras. So we're excited about that one. Yeah, the track that we did together is called Sack of Weed. Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting piece, but it's talking about someone stealing my sack of weed. <laughs> <laughs> is that coming out on Space yeah. Disco, or do you have a home for it yet? Yeah, uh, we actually I don't I don't think we're going to shop that. We're really going to focus on Weed Jack this year. Okay. Yeah, we have a serious, serious, serious lineup of people that we're going to have on Weed Jack. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag. I think I can let one. I can, I can let one. The, we did this track called Hit It From The Back, which is an old DJ Milton song. And uh, definitely hashtag free, free Milton, because Milton's in jail. Um, but it's my homie right there, and I licensed the track from him. And when I licensed the track, DJ Dion is the one who kind of like handles all his stuff, and it was awesome because I was like, yo, man, I want to license this track from Milton. He was like, Man, that's my fucking voice on there. I was like, oh, shit. Okay, cool. He's the guy did that vocal for Milton years ago. I'm like, all right, so you're on the track, too. So so we did this track, and it turned out really good. So we were just like, man, this is a cool remake. We did it with our friend John Kennedy. So we did this track, and then I was like, man, I need to start getting the remixes, too. And me and Zach were like, well, we just fucking brought out Christian Martin. Maybe we should ask him to do a remix. And Christian crushed it. Like, he did oh, man, a fucking remix, bro. Well, yeah. That's really good. 
Yeah. Like, first of all, it's hard to top a ghetto house classic, first of all. You know what I mean? Ours is very classic because we did it with Melt and Neon, so it's like, it definitely has like the big toms in it, big, big, I don't know, you know, and then he just came with it, bro. Like, he, he really crushed it. I don't mean to hype it up right now, like a sales guy or something, but he's literally the shit. I've been playing it in every step, so. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then just for people listening who may not know, Weed Jack is is your guys's label, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So that's awesome, man. Big things on the label. Then that's good. That is one thing I was going to ask you guys about. Is you know a lot of people really shy away from from touching the classics just because um, maybe you feel like you won't be able to do it justice, or it's just like you know, just, just, just let it be what it is of its place in time. But especially that Chai Till I Die album you guys did last year, if you go back and look at that track list, it's like, you are not fucking around with like leaving the classics alone. Oh no, I'm going straight at them. Actually, that's one of our goals is, yeah, I feel like the principal witness of the classics is you, me, Zach, George, like all of us, Colette, we all have, and Bill, like, we all have this love for classics. But does that 16-year-old? Probably not. They don't listen to it the same way we do. So initially when we started Ghetto Blaster, the goal was to redo classics and try to like really stay within 80s and early 90s sound. But with the 2000, at the time, 2014 bass lines and kick drums. And so that way you hear these relevant sounds from trap and electro and this. But you're like, this is like not that. It's jack in house but it has the elements so i'm going to use a bullet that skrillex will use i'm going to use a baseline that like laidback leaf would use but i'm not going to write it like that i'm going to write it in the chicago classics form but give it that that facelift that it needs yeah you know that makes sense it goes back to that kind of educational element that's kind of a underlying current through all of this i feel like i mean t- to your point like you know without the ghetto blaster reimagining you're probably not going to hear, you know, even a classic like Jack Your Body or something in any like contemporary house set at a festival, you know? Right. And that's just it though. When yeah. we redid it, all of a sudden it popped up on festival playlists. I yep. was like, dude, Clapton just played us at Coachella. Holy shit. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you yeah. know, so like those are the things that blow me away with redoing the classics. Because the nice thing is, even though 17, 18, 19, and 20 year olds go to festivals, most of us headlining festivals are between the ages of like 30 and 40. So like all of us have that history and that knowledge. So it's like, I mean, they're all the, you know, the things that are younger, that, you know, like the, like the Martin Garrix, but you know, even Martin Garrix, he charted one of our tracks in the Spotify playlist. I don't even know how that happened. Are you serious? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. totally. It's like, it's like, I actually thought to myself, and like, no offense, Mr. Garrish, if you hear this, but like, I was really kind of mad that you charged my track. <laughs> I, was a lot of it, I thank you for all the Spotify followers after that, but you know. Yeah, that definitely helped. <laughs> but it was cool, though. Thank you, buddy. He that he he's educated. I get what you're saying. But that's just like the traditionalist in you, you know? I mean, I think I think that's a tip of the hat and really proof positive that what you guys set out to do is working, that you're able to at the same time be, you know, relevant with the, with the kids and the festivals without, like, getting shade from, like, the old school Chicago heads. Like, you get love from both sides of that line. And I can't think of another artist that's been able to do it to the same level that you guys have, you know? Right, I appreciate that. I mean, there's there's a lot of guys that are out there, you know, producing hits that get played by all those guys you just mentioned, but they don't have the respect of you know, Colette and Carter and Bill and like everybody that came before. And there's a lot of guys that yeah, are killing sure. it, and there's a lot of guys that are killing it in the underground, but they're not getting played at festivals, you know. So you guys have found this niche and you found a way to do it, and it's it's cool, it's fun to watch. Our sound is is a very crossover sound. Like I feel like main room can handle it and I think that the small room can handle it because we play in rooms like our, our two residencies are pretty small rooms so like you know we're, we, have, we have a residency a primary in Chicago I mean the capacity there is like a little less than 300 and same thing with Grasshopper Underground in Detroit this room only holds like 250 and it's like our music goes over just as well there as it does when we played in Chicago at uh, House of Soul which was like what 100,000 people so yeah. 
Yeah, well, a giant Hispanic festival. Chicago that does 1.5 million people over five days. We got a chance to play the main stage there at the headlining time slot for that Sunday. And, uh, I mean, our music went over just as well there than it does the small room. So cool. So you have, so you have, uh, pineapples and palm trees coming out soon. Um, yep. all the track, all the tracks for that are done. Everything's in the can ready to go. Yep. Awesome. Yep. So what's so what's next for you after that? I mean, do you have, are you guys going to tour after release of that album, or, or what is what? Yeah, is we're going to probably do like a four month tour from that. We also have a release with uh, ZXX and uh, Fuzzy Cuff Links on Treasure Fingers label coming up. Okay. Which is uh, Psycho Disco. That will be what our fourth or fifth release. Act? I don't even know how many we have on there. Yeah, I think it might be a fifth one. I think it's a fifth one. Okay, fifth one. Then we got a remix from Treasure Fingers on this. We have one from Captain Cadillac, and we actually have two from Don Remini. So it was awesome. I hit up Don after we left, uh, after we left France, and I was like, how's that remix coming along? And he sent me three links. I was like, I was like, are you into the project? He was like, I'm so into the project of doing three different remixes of it. So he, he narrowed it down to actually two remixes of it. But yeah, he did two different mixes of it. They were just all slamming. So really excited for that project. That's going to be a big one. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, guys. So if you go to our fan page, you can actually see our, we have a recap from Paris. The actual soundtrack to that, like to the video, is uh, is the song, our original version. So Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Um, cool. Well, Hey, we are, uh, we're over an hour here now and it's kind of right up through, um, through current projects and what we have going on next. Is there anything else that you want to cover specifically before we wrap this thing up or? Zach, you got anything? Nah, I went over the album. All right, guys, I'm going to jump off. It was great talking to you, bro. If you need anything else, you got to get a hold of us. Yeah, that sounds good. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you guys. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Zach. Yeah, thank you. All right, talk to you later. The Dance Music Diaries. Dance Music Diaries.